Yesterday, we buried an icon, a part of our local black history, Minister Franklin D. Florence, a man who we chose to name our outdoor civil rights park after. Minister Florence had quite a story. He was a prophetic voice during our time, our black history. He came to Rochester at a time when we were struggling with three major issues for the black community that are still present today, employment, education, and health. One of his main influences was the preaching and the writings of Dr. James Cone, the author of Black Liberation Theology. It placed Jesus and God among the struggle of the black oppressed for liberation, connecting the dots between God's presence in Israel's struggle from oppression and injustice and suffering to liberation to that of black Americans, stating that God's liberating nature is unchanged. So Cone's 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power, provided a new way for us to comprehensively define the distinctiveness of theology in the black church. His message was this, that black power, defined as black people asserting the humanity that white supremacy denied, was in fact the gospel in America. Cone noted that Jesus in the gospels was always reinserting humanity for those on the margins of our society. Cone said, if Jesus came to liberate the oppressed, then he would in essence be advocating the same thing as black power, which was a precursor to the Black Lives Matter movement, both calling for black humanity in the face of systemic violence and threat. Cone's book argued that white American churches, by not dealing with black oppression connected to the cruel histories of enslavement and lynching and Jim Crow and systemic racism impacting people of color, in effect, allowed them to find themselves preaching a gospel based in white supremacy and that it would be antithetical, he says, to the gospel of Jesus. Now, how do you think that went over? But for Minister Florence, the holdovers of discriminatory hiring, substandard education, housing, and health care was a continuation of the relics of our racial past. As he began to preach black liberation theology and create a movement around black liberation, he found himself under fire from those both in the white community and the black community. Black pastors were afraid they were afraid that his movement of holding the power systems accountable was too radical for the white mainstream. And they felt that they held all the access and opportunities for blacks and that this just would not be accepted. And so he started the fight organization that originally stood for freedom, integration, God, honor, and today, justice today. But eventually he replaced the word integration with independence, independence from the jaws of white supremacy laws, structures, and practices that stood in the way of black humanity, opportunity, and freedom. 
And very soon, backlash came for speaking up and working on behalf of the marginalized. And similar to what happened to us when we stood for the marginalized at Corpus, the church that he pastored was taken away from him. Also, like our community, he rebounded, steeped in his values for humanity. He decided to start his own church, Central Church of Christ, which is just around the corner here on North Plymouth Avenue. In his lifetime, through speaking truth to power and the work through the fight organization, he literally changed our city. He took on discriminatory hiring practices at Rochester's largest employers. He forced Kodak to hire 600 African-American workers in a job training program where they would hire more than just, hire them for more than just low-paying service jobs. And literally that effort helped create the black middle class in Rochester. No small feat. He worked with the executive of Xerox and established a black-owned business to compete with white-dominant corporations, creating a business called Eltrex Industries, a black-owned training and employment agency that put to work thousands of black people in this community. And then at the funeral for him, I listened to our own Nelson Leanhouse speak about working with him to address housing inequities, to create two housing developments for black and poor families called Fight Village and Fight Square that continue to exist today. He was also, I learned, an observer in the Attica prison uprising, and he preached to protesting inmates, denouncing the exploitive social conditions that they were complaining about, and he tried to encourage the government to negotiate, but he failed. I also learned that he was the founding member of Action for a Better Community and Northeast, Northeast Development Corporation, addressing black poverty. And in his later years, he protested against police brutality, political hiring of the public defender that refused to include the presence and voices of black community members that were directly impacted by the representation there. He spent his life trying to improve this community by challenging laws and practices and powerful influential voices that kept justice just outside the reach of black Americans. He called us to a higher moral code than what we had legalized and what was being practiced. And so it's no wonder that on Black History Month, in Matthew's Gospel today, Jesus is confronted by a group of disciples as he preaches his Sermon on the Mount with a challenge about their community. And this is a very strong teaching that Jesus gives to us today. This passage actually starts with the answer to an apparent question and not the question itself. Jesus is being asked about the laws and the prophets. And he responds definitively in the gospel, and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the laws and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, fulfill which ones? There were 330 recorded prophecies, 613 religious laws, and many, many Roman imperial laws. You see, laws are how we as a society communicate our most concentrated use of power and guidance for citizens. The prophets were the guiding voices 
of Jesus' time and people who predicted the things that were to come. Take example Isaiah, the prophet. In one of Isaiah's prophecies, he, he talks about the Messiah coming and he talks about justice and he talks about miracles that will be brought. In chapter 42, Isaiah says this, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, who in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations and he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Very hopeful, right? Y'all gonna talk to me? All right, very hopeful. But now in a few more chapters later, he takes a less hopeful turn. The same prophet, he says this, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before shearers, he never said a word. So when Jesus says he doesn't come to abolish the laws and the prophet, he knows that his life will fulfill both. He also knows that he won't be getting rid of the Roman law, but the law will find a way to get rid of him. Amen? Could it be that these disciples saw and were seeking Jesus as the solution to their powerlessness and looking for him to have a plan to address the ways the laws and the prophets and the voices were landing not just on him, but on them, those who were not seated at the center of power? So Jesus knows, though, as he's answering them, that this movement of his, of love and justice, will come with natural consequences and risks. But you know, he's not the only one who knows that. We know that too, don't we? When you stand up for justice, it comes with consequences and risks. I had the opportunity, I often have the opportunity to challenge lots of power brokers on racial justice reform, police, government officials, pastors, politicians, and sometimes I'm invited back to talk more. <laughs> oh, but there are other times <laughs> where I am blocked from future conversations or encounter a refusal to even take my request for an appointment. It is why I say everything that I have to say the first time I show up. You never, <laughs> you just never know if you'll get that second chance. You see, when you are on the margins, as many of Jesus' disciples were, you experience laws and policies and practices and voices of authority in society differently than those who are in the dominant culture with access to power. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees at the center of power, he is acknowledging perhaps their deepest concern about the power relationships that they live with daily, particularly power embedded in the laws and policies and practices that govern us. Recently, I had a young African-American man tell me that on his job, at a very well-known organization, he applied for a management position. And right away, he was told that because he had three points on his work record, he could not be considered for the position. The position was, however, filled 
with a white male. And later he learned that when he was given the position, he actually had eight points on his work record. But somehow it didn't keep him from getting the position. He received, this young man told me, an apology, but no redress. Together recently, we all watched in horror Tyree Nichols, a young black man brutally beaten by officers of the law. Not because he broke the law, but because he was running from a law that was trying to break him. Tyree became the fulfillment of the law. Not unlike so many other unarmed people of color before him. Michael Browns, Philando Castile, the Sandra Blands, the George Floyds, the Daniel Prudes, and now we got to watch Tyree Nichols. And you see, America's unwillingness to come to terms with policing, being a slave patrol blueprint model in this country, and protecting that blueprint as a sacred cow will always produce what we saw, excessive control, anxiety, monitoring, open season for violence, and potential death, even when the officers in the uniform are black. You see, Tyree Nichols didn't die that day because black officers went too far. He died because of the power of our socializations around anti-blackness, around anxiety, around internalized oppression and superiority that is so unconsciously baked into the blueprint of not only policing, but so many other parts of our life together that no one, no one escapes its impact. Not you and not me. It is all around us. And is why I continue to revive the call for a new policing blueprint. And if you'd like to take a look at it, go to the Spark website and take a look. If we do not push a new blueprint, we will watch death again and again and again and again. And we are people of life. Amen? Amen. So inequity and injustice is all around us. For children, we see it in the education system, where nearly half of all of our children in Rochester, especially children of color, are living in poverty, the second highest rate in the nation. I learned the other day that over 2,000 of our RCSD students and children of color are struggling with homelessness. And more than half of the students are two or more grade levels behind in math or reading. It is time to stand up for our children. It is why it is imperative for Spark and the Black Community Focus Fund to invite Dr. Starsky from the Children's Defense Fund to be our keynote speaker. This year's fundraiser to talk to us about building a future of well-being for children. Senator Cory Booker, when I went to Washington and attended the African American Faith Leaders Summit, added an additional struggle for our children, food justice. He said, this is our present day civil rights fight. 
Booker raised the alarm on Americans' broken food system and nutrition crisis, endangering communities of color. He said this, the American food system is working against nearly everyone it touches. It is hurting urban communities and rural communities, farmers and farm workers. It is deeply dangerous to our most vulnerable communities. The only winners in this system are the massive, consolidated, multinational corporations that dominate our food industry and too often dictate our food policy. But here's the good news. He invited us to support two bills that can help, the Climate Stewardship Act and the Food and Nutrition Education in Schools Act. Think for a minute of all the food deserts that kids in our city and kids of color have to deal with, to the extent that they often think that McDonald's is where you get a healthy meal without realizing the long-term effects. So what would it mean? What would it mean for our children to have plant-based and healthy food options, to curtail things like diabetes and obesity and future health problems. We were so delighted to hear from the government that they were setting aside a billion dollars in grant money to address these concerns and these issues in communities of color. They were changing policies and practices to get resources to black churches and nonprofits to address the crisis in these communities. Dr. King once said this, he said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power, though at its best, is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. So through our Love and Justice fundraising music concert, we can remind each other of that truth. Our call to use power, our power, to correct everything that stands against love. So notice that when Jesus is confronted with the issues of power and justice, he doesn't just remind the disciples that he too will be a victim of this power system and that he will be rendered powerless by the world's standards. But he knows that he has a power greater than death. He knows that he has the ability to give life. And so he takes them on a journey of introspection so that they too can know the formula. He invites them and he invites us to pay attention to the journey, the histories that brought us to where we are. He begins with introspection and a pattern of thinking to bring about justice, to interrupt unwarranted or unwanted consequences. And so Jesus invites us and tells us today, don't just look at the current final outcome, but understand what happened along the journey. And regardless of what Ron DeSantis says, history is important. So Jesus reminds us and the disciples that the history of how we get to a place matters. 
And so he tells them, you have heard it said that thou shall not kill. And then he gives them a new commandment that requires that they pay attention to how they got to murder. He says, pay attention to what makes you angry. He invites us to look at how we express that anger, how we focus on it, sometimes how we nurse it and struggle to let go until it accumulates into an act of murder. I remember growing up with a young man who was angry all the time. He fought all the time. He resorted to violent speech and physical altercations with just about everybody. And as, you know, as children, I didn't think much of it. But eventually, as an adult, that anger landed him in prison for taking a life. He got to his final act over time, not overnight. And it began with a lifetime of nursing his anger and perhaps the failure of a community because we didn't see it and we didn't do much to interrupt it. Jesus goes on and he says, you've heard it said that thou shall not bear false witness. Again, he's asking them for introspection. Maybe before we get to the place of wanting to be dishonest, to pay attention to the anxiety that rises up when that question is asked the pressure that builds up inside. Maybe commit to interrogating our fears. Give ourselves time to determine if yes or no is the right answer. To ask ourselves those deeper questions of what is really turning me away from the truth. Then Jesus goes on and he says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery before the act of adultery happens again. He calls on them to pay attention to the starting place of the adulterous act. Desires that weren't reined in, maybe dismissal of rational thinking, a lack of consideration for their spouse who they took their vows with. You know, and introspection is not an easy thing to do, right? To do some self-reflection about what's really going on here. I had to do that myself, you know, like I, when I'm working on a project or I'm doing something, the last thing I'm, I like is for somebody to call me, Myra, come look at this. If they could see me rolling my eyes in that kitchen, <laughs> right, and go, what do they want? Don't they know that I'm busy or this project that I'm working on, right? But I have to, I had to take a look at that and realize that part of this was really about me. All of it actually was about me. Right? I like to start and finish a thing before I move to the next thing. And so I had to start telling myself the story. They're just calling you because they love you. <laughs> they this is really much more important. Whatever story I had to tell, right? I had to do it because I wanted to understand what was happening to me and to be able to offer people better, right? And to show up when they needed me to. So the point that Jesus is making in this gospel is that we don't get to the places of injustice overnight. Jesus reminds us that there is room to interrupt ourselves along the way if we choose to do the work and pay attention. When we encounter suffering, we have two choices. We can insulate ourselves from it, or we can be like Jesus and allow it to touch us, to move us to act 
just as Minister Franklin Florence did. Imagine what we could do together, friends. If one man could do all of that in this community, how much more could we do together? Black History Month is about the many freedom fighters who called our systems to look at not only where we are, but how we got there, and then to do the work of liberation and justice and love and peace. We have a lot of work to do together to undo the many injustices of our laws and our practices and our policies in the world. We are even looking at our own policies here at Spiritus because it is holy, sacred work. George Leitenberg said once, I cannot say whether things will get better if we change, but what I can say is that they must change if they are to get better. But I think James Baldwin said it best. He said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing, nothing can be changed until it is faced.